my name is Merle Flenner, and I serve here on the Elder Council at FBC. And today we'll be reading the scriptures from Luke 18, 31 through 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things, saying this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Thanks, Merle. Good morning. This morning we will be in uh, Luke chapter 18, as, as Merle read for us. And we're at a portion of the text that we're going to be in. We're going to be in 1831 through 43. Let's ask God for his help as we take a little time in his word today. Lord, we thank you for being here with us this morning, and we thank you for the joy it is to know you as our Savior. We pray, God, as we look at your word and think about and consider the things of Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would do the work uh, in our hearts, that you would reveal to us those things we need to believe, those things we need to disbelieve, those things we need to turn over to you in repentance, those things we need to hold tightly to as truths that reveal your glory and grace. So, Jesus, we pray that you would be lifted up as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 18, 31 to 43, one of the things we need to think about as we begin our journey through this passage this morning is this, purpose matters. Purpose matters. And if you think about it in terms of the legal system, the modern-day legal system we experience here in the United States anyway, Purpose matters if somebody has been charged with a crime. In fact, one of the primary objectives of investigators when they discover a crime has been committed and they identify a suspect is trying to determine the motive behind what was done. In fact, in, in some cases, prosecutors have to be able to prove criminal intent if somebody is going to be charged with a crime and then also be convicted of that crime, and without knowing the purpose behind the action, without knowing the motivation or the intent, in fact, it becomes nearly impossible to gain a conviction against somebody that maybe everybody knows they did a thing, but if they have to show the why behind the action, the action that was done. Now, on a positive side, when we think of purpose, when we think of an individual having purpose, what we can call that is mission, a person's Mission. That is, when we look at Jesus, we ought to ask this question, what was Jesus' mission and why was that his mission? And when we look at the passage this morning in Luke 18, 31 to 43, it answers both of those questions. The mission of Jesus and the why he had that as his mission. So let's start with verses 31 to 34, the passage or the section that Merle read already, the mission of Jesus, that is, what he had to do. And of course, from the passage, we know what he had to do. He had to suffer 
and die and be raised from the dead. The mission of Jesus, what he had to do. Now, there was an old TV show, and it's, it's almost embarrassing to remind us of this TV show because I've watched it recently, and it's terrible. But at the time, it was incredible. And the, the TV show is called The A-Team. You had Colonel Hannibal, and you had Murdoch, and of course the big one, B.A. Baracus. He was afraid to fly. Now, on the A-team, what would happen is they were mercenaries. I'm going to tell you the whole story because it's really, really quite dull. Don't really know how the show was successful, but it was. They would go on a mission, and at some point in the mission, things would go wrong, and they would end up captured by the bad guys in every single episode the bad guys would trap them in a storage facility containing a large quantity of things that could be immediately turned into heavy weaponry every time they put them not in an empty shed not in a cell they put them in a storage shed with fuel and and metal so they could build a tank and they would always escape from the storage facility with Weapons that they had built that far surpassed the modern weaponry that the bad guys were using. And they would quickly defeat them. And of course, here's the thing we all loved at the end of every episode with a cigar between his teeth. Colonel Hannibal would say, I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> and what he was speaking to was the reality that they had mission and they accomplished their mission. They were on target. They had purpose. And Jesus was on a mission. He had a plan. Jesus was focused on his purpose. And his purpose is, is stated in this passage that we'll review here in a moment. His purpose is this, to bring redemption and forgiveness through his voluntary sacrifice, his voluntary suffering, his voluntary death, and then experience resurrection to glory. That's his purpose, and that's his mission. Look at verse 31. Taking the 12 disciples, Peter, James, John, Andrew, and the others, he explains to them as they're making their way towards Jerusalem what the plan is. We are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So the mission of Jesus, what he had to do, suffer and die, first thing we need to understand about this mission this plan isn't a new mission. Unlike the A-team, their mission at some point would break down and they would have to scramble to come up with a new plan. Jesus wasn't scrambling. He wasn't on plan B, C, D, or E. He was on plan A. The mission he was on going to Jerusalem was the plan and had always been the plan. In fact, it had been the plan before the creation of the world. Jesus' intention was to go to Jerusalem as his destination, but his plan was not to obtain glory in, in Jerusalem like his disciples hoped. Instead, his plan was to finish the work of redemption in Jerusalem. This redemption is a, a critical plan. It had begun back in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned against God. And, and God had promised to the man and the woman that at some point her seed would come and crush the head 
of the serpent. This plan to bring redemption and forgiveness of sins addresses so much more in our life than simply making us feel better about the bad things that we have done. See, that's what we tend to think of about redemption. Redemption, forgiveness of sins, is supposed to help us not feel guilty about the bad things we have done. It does do that, doesn't it? Having been forgiven, we no longer have to live with shame and guilt. But the primary purpose of the plan of redemption was to fix the one thing that was ruined, and that is our relationship with God. See, Adam and Eve felt shame because they had done something evil. God felt loss. When he came walking through the garden in the cool of the day, what did he do? Where are you guys? See, Adam and Eve felt shame and guilt, but the one thing they failed to understand because sin had already ruined them, they weren't experiencing the loss of that relationship the way they ought to have been. Jesus' plan was to redeem our relationship with God. Now, sin has to be dealt with. Guilt has to be dealt with. All of that has to be dealt with. But the aim is right relationship with God. If you want forgiveness of sins and you are disinterested in knowing God, you've missed the point. The point of having your sin taken care of is so that you can have right relationship with God. That's the whole that's the whole aim. I think nowadays we tend to think of forgiveness of sins as God worked to help us to no longer feel like we did something naughty. God's redemption is intended to help us know God. It's intended to draw us closer to him. Here's another way of thinking about it. What is the great thing about heaven? Mansion, fishing, I don't know, grass, uh, gold streets, that we don't sin anymore, that'll be nice. The, the goal of heaven is to always be with God. How do you know sin has ruined you? Well, you know, but let me make it more. When you wake up in the morning, how often do you wake up and just you're just filled with joy that God is with you. Some mornings, right? I would hope some mornings you wake up and say, man, Lord, another day, thank you. But most of us have to gin up the energy to connect with God. Most of us, if you're normal, this is all of us, myself included, and even Merle, <laughs> we wake up in the morning and we go, oh, here we go. I know what's coming today. Oh, I, oh, I better read my Bible Right? Do you ever say that? Oh, I better read my Bible and pray. Try that with your wife. Tell her, oh, that's right, honey. I'd better come in and say hi to you. See how she responds. You, what do you mean you'd better? No, thanks. I don't want to talk to you. If it's a chore to come talk to me, how about don't? But that's how we approach our relationship with God. Well, gee, God, I guess I better come in and pray. Seven Hail Marys or whatever it is, right? I don't know. See, fundamentally, we can look at the way we relate to God, and we can immediately recognize something's not right. I don't value this relationship the way God does. And we know this. Jesus came to fix that. That's his mission. That's his, his goal. And this has always been the plan from Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned till Genesis 21 when when Abraham offered his son Isaac on the altar, knowing that, this is what the author of Hebrews told us, he knew 
that if you killed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. Because God had promised that Isaac was the son of the covenant. All the way up to King David in 2 Samuel 7, when God told King David that your son will sit on your throne, and your throne, his throne will endure forever. And there's only one way to have a kingdom last forever, is to have a king that lasts forever. And so all through, this has been the plan all along. One passage in particular is worth looking at, and that's Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it. Speaking of what had been spoken of Jesus through the prophets, this is a familiar passage, but it's worth being reminded. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All like sheep, we have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's his mission. Spoken by the prophet some 600 years before the birth of Christ. He will come to be pierced for our iniquities. That's the plan. That's the mission. The mission of Jesus. What he had to do. What he had always planned to do since before the creation of the world. Was to hang on a cross and die for our sin. And to be raised from the dead. He had to die because there had to be a substitute. That's what the Old Testament system was intended to communicate to the people of Israel, that a substitute could stand in for you for your sacrifice. And so they were told to sacrifice sheep and goats and, uh, and uh, cattle and bulls, and they were to stand in on the Day of Atonement for them. Someone else's blood could be shed on behalf of me, but over the course of time, they realized the animals aren't working. How do they know the animals aren't doing the trick? Because they had to keep doing it. If you have to keep fixing the thing, the thing still broke. And so they knew because they had to keep making sacrifices, this wasn't permanent. What we would really need, this is what that system was supposed to make them think. Man, wouldn't it be great if we had, could just do it this once? Wouldn't that be great? And then Jesus shows up in the house. I'll do it once for all. So Jesus intends to come and be the once-for-all sacrifice for humankind that any who would trust him would have their forgiveness com completely cover all the sins they have ever done and they ever will do. That's the mission. That's the whole mission. That's the plan. There it is. That quote from John Stott is fantastic, Seth. Next time, get that to me when I'm doing sermon prep. That was a fantastic quote. 
Verses 32 through 33. I could stay on that all day. Let's look at the next one. He talks to his disciples about the plan, how the mission will be executed. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they'll kill him. On the third day, he will rise. This mission to bring salvation and redemption for sinners, to bring forgiveness of sin and right relationship with God, will travel through the roadway of suffering at the hands of the Gentiles. Now, the hope for the disciples was the roadway of suffering would be walked by the Gentiles. They wanted the Romans to walk the roadway of suffering at the hands of an angry redeemer. Jesus instead says, no, no, no. I will rock the road of suffering at the hands of the Gentiles, completely ruining their hopes and expectations. His intention is to experience shame and mistreatment and even death. He is going to experience all the effects that sin brings. Think about the effects of sin in your life. I know, that's real positive. Here we go. When you do something terrible... There are certain effects that that thing does. If it is a known thing, it might damage relationships. If it is an unknown thing, the shame and guilt might plague you. There is a numbing of our sense of love toward God when we sin. The things of godliness, such as scripture and prayer and devotion to others through loving sacrifice, a desire to do those things become lessened as we engage in the appetites of sin. I'm not, am I telling you anything you don't know? No, just things you don't like to think about. So what we do because of these effects of sin, we work diligently to mask or medicate those effects so we don't experience them fully. So we feel bad, so we numb ourselves distracting our minds with all kinds of entertainment, or we drink a bunch of alcohol, or take a bunch of medication, or, or another great way to medicate the effects of sin that we experience is engaging in more sin. Jesus experienced all the effects of sin and did not mask or medicate any of them. He experienced those effects to the fullest degree. Remember that scene on the cross where they lifted up to him some wine vinegar and he tasted it? What do you do? He said, no, thank you. I want to feel it all. I want to experience all of it. You and I, because of our deadness in our sin and the ruin that is caused in our flesh, we have never fully understood and realized how damaging sin is. Jesus knows it to its fullest degree. And that was the mission. That was the plan. That was the purpose. Jesus knew what was coming, and he knew it from eternity past, and he would not be uh, dissuaded from it. And the reason Jesus was on mission, because this mission was one in which he was fully in charge. Remember when he stood before Pilate, and Pilate reminded Jesus, don't you know that I have authority to either kill you or set you free? And what did Jesus say? The authority you have was given to you from above, meaning... I'm in charge here, bro. You think you're in charge. You're not. King of the world, standing before Pilate, is still in charge. Everything that happened was fully at and fully in control of 
Jesus. Everything happened according to his direct intention and action. And then finally, he raised from the dead, bringing victory over sin and victory over death, meaning any who trust Jesus experience forgiveness of sin, the righteousness of Christ immediately, and have the hope of glory one day when we die, we don't die, we keep on living forever with Jesus. That's the whole mission. That's the whole plan. Verse 34, but they, that is the disciples, understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he has said. Now, it's easy to make fun of the disciples because oftentimes they th seem a little bit, well, I don't know how to say it politely. Like, how do you not get this? Well, for a couple of things. First of all, we read the end of the book. We know how it ends, right? They hadn't read the end yet. It was still being written. The, the, the history was still happening, so they were a little bit confused. We're trying to be nice. I've been, I've been working on this in 2023, trying to be more, more nice. I'm not doing great, but we're getting there. But here's, here's what you have to recognize about the disciples, and you've had this happen in your life, too, is you have such a a profound expectation of what something is going to be, that when it's not that thing, you, you just can't make heads or tails of it. This happened to me the other day. I was getting on my scooter that I ride to work, and somebody had walked by the scooter and, and knocked the mirror, so it was not aiming the way it normally does, right? And so I sat down, and I looked in the mirror, and I was sort of pointing out the garage, but up at the neighbor's house, and I said, I could not figure out what was wrong with the mirror. It's like, where's my yard? And because I'm so used to seeing a particular thing in that mirror, that, and it took me a minute. Of course, it was also pretty early in the morning, so I wasn't quite awake yet, but it wasn't what I expected, and it took me a minute to figure out what it was. I, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with my mirror. I, I thought, is it broken? Is the, is the lens missing? Honestly, for a minute, it, it was a tough morning. <laughs> that was the that was the peak of that day. But this is what is happening to the disciples. They had in their mind, and this is what they had been taught in Hebrew school, in synagogue, when the Messiah shows up, he defeats the Romans, he sets up his kingdom, the throne of David is established, and glory comes, and all those who are with Messiah experience the power of his new kingdom. This is all they knew, and, and they couldn't, for the life of them, make connection between these two visions. And so when Jesus is talking to them about being flogged, what are you talking about? And so you can imagine, okay, the Romans are flogging the Messiah. Certainly, certainly the bits of glass and bone on the ends of those leather strips just bounce off of him and hurt him. That'll be hilarious. It'll be hilarious to watch the Romans flog the Messiah and, the, and they don't do anything. Be like flogging Superman. I mean, what happens? Nothing happens. It'll, oh, that, and then he'll probably, he'll probably take them the whip away from the Roman soldier, like Benaiah took away the spear from the giant Egyptian. Have you read that story? And killed him with his own spear. Oh, that'll be fantastic. That'll be fantastic. You can imagine, it's just this dissonance. And Jesus, no, and th so this is what's happening with the disciples. It's not that they're stupid. It's just their expectations are so fixated on what they thought were, was going to happen. They couldn't make heads or tails of the actual mission. And that's normal. We do this. We do this all the time. 
It kept going. Look at the end of the book. We're not up to Luke 24 yet, but let's peek ahead. Luke 24, beginning in verse 25, Jesus is raised from the dead, and he's walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of the disciples. He explained to them what was going on, and, and they weren't getting it still. He said to them, O foolish ones, now he's being nice, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Just, I've got to stop there. This is off script, so this, this one's free. Isn't it interesting that the risen Christ was appealing to the truth of the prophets? Isn't that interesting? It might be that New Testament Christians should be prophet kind of Christians. Maybe we should read our Old Testament. That's my nice way of saying. You might want to break open Isaiah every now and then. Jeremiah is pretty good. He gets thrown in a pit and sinks. That's fun. So, I mean, there, to know Jesus fully, let me put it this way. You need to read your Old Testament. That's all. That one's free. Somebody, I heard you. Someone said, it's still overpriced. Okay, I get it. How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Why is this so critically important? Jesus wanted to show us the plan of redemption was his plan, and that plan had been in place since the beginning, and all of the Older Testament is intended to draw our eyes and attention to the culmination of the Old Testament in Christ himself, and what this means about your redemption in Christ, it means this, your redemption is not about your redemption your redemption is about your Savior. The salvation we receive in Christ is something that brings us great benefit, but the aim of our salvation is to draw our attention to the Savior. That's the whole plan. We are saved from our sin to have our eyes on Christ. That's the whole point. The redemption of Jesus is intended to be about Jesus, and it's intended to be for Jesus. It's Jesus as God in the flesh expressing his nature as a Savior, and it is more important, listen, it is more important for Jesus to act as a Savior than for us to get saved, because the aim of our salvation is is his glory, not merely our benefit. Good news, getting saved is a great benefit to us, isn't it? He didn't have to do it that way. Why did he have to do that? Is, is he painted into a corner? Is he out of options? He could have been the Savior and made it terrible. He didn't. We're going to see why in the second part of this scripture, because it's contrary to his nature, because he's, he's nice, he's kind. But the aim of our salvation is to draw attention to someone like this who would redeem sinners like us. I mean, let's look at it. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 5, 1 through 11. But some of you said, well, that's a lot of verses to read. You know my answer. 
I don't care. Jason's got it. He's got to memorize. I don't care. We were talking about churches, uh, church history on Wednesday night uh, before our Bible study in Job started. And I mentioned that in throughout church history, much of church history, there weren't a lot of chairs. In fact, most people would stand throughout the services. And benches were provided typically on the sides for old people and, uh, and the sick. And uh, at some point, we said, you know, maybe we could sit down. We could afford chairs. I don't know. And then usually the beginning of the service was 45 minutes to an hour of Scripture reading. And why would that be necessary? Because nobody had a Bible. There was no printing press in the 1300s. It was the only time anybody had an opportunity to hear the Scripture because the, nobody could have a Bible of their own. And uh, so stop whining that I'm reading 11 verses. You got a chair. I'm not going to read for an hour. You're welcome. All right. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Those last two verses are really, really important. Because in verse 10, he says, we were enemies and reconciled to God by the death of his son. That means good news. You got forgiveness of sin by the death of Jesus. And then he says what? Much more. Another way we might say, more importantly, more importantly, we are reconciled by his life. So he says, yeah, you've been forgiven of sin. What's more importantly? Reconciled. Right relationship with God. That's the aim. Is that you and God would have a whole relationship that has no dividing line. And what he's saying is the life of Christ, his resurrection power, gives us that reconciliation. Verse 11, more than that, it gets better, but wait, there's more. If you buy today, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received what? Reconciliation. Now, reconciliation involves the forgiveness of sins in that we cannot have reconciliation without the forgiveness of sins. But notice, we have joy, not because, not merely, I should say, not merely because sins are forgiven. We have joy, why? Because of what it brings. What's it bring? Right relationship with God. That's the aim. 
If you don't want God, you don't want salvation because that's the whole purpose. If all you want is to not feel bad about your sin, get a good therapist. I don't mean to be rude, but it does not rightly bring glory to Christ for what he did when we don't want relationship with him. That's the goal. Get the sin handled so we can live by him and for him all our days till he takes us to glory. That's the hope, isn't it? That's Jesus' mission. And he wants that to be our mission. The mission of Jesus, what he had to do, suffer and die and be raised from the dead so sinners like you and me can have right relationship with God for all of eternity. Now the question might be what was going on in Jesus' mind as he's heading toward Jerusalem. And so this journey toward Jerusalem is interrupted over in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35, by a blind man. So if the mission of Jesus is to suffer and die, the question is, why would he do that? And I'll give you the answer, and it is this, in order to show his compassion. Now, there's lots of reasons Jesus did it, but one of the reasons, and a primary reason, is because he is compassionate. And that's what we discover through this occasion. Let me read it. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing the crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me, and Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, that is Jesus, asked him this, what do you want for me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. Immediately, he recovered his sight. And he followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The mission of Jesus, why he did this, remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And now in this moment, Luke places this text in this place to show us why he's doing it. It's to show his compassion. If you've ever had to deal with customer service when you're either making a purchase or having service done on your home or your vehicle, you can tell immediately when someone is helping you whether this person really enjoys their work or if they just have a job. You can tell the difference when somebody's really into what they're doing or if they're just punching the clock. You know what I'm talking about, right? The question is, as Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem, what's his attitude? Is this something he is into, or is he dragging his feet, regretting that he has to walk this road? And the answer is that Jesus' attitude toward those who died was one of compassionate mercy. He wanted to communicate to all of us his deep desire to help those who were desperately in need. That's his attitude as he makes his way to Jerusalem. He wants to make sure we understand that he is going there with a deep desire to communicate how he wants to express his compassion to sinners that need help. This blind man reminds us of the tax collector we read about a few weeks ago. Remember the prayer of the tax collector? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, 
He went home justified because he cried out to God in desperation. So Jesus here comes and is on his way to Jerusalem. Of course, Jericho is just like 15 miles away uh, from Jerusalem, but unfortunately, it's all uphill. And and this blind man, here's the crowd going by. He's used to obviously using his hearing since his sight had failed him. Having expressed his question to the crowd as they're passing by what's going on, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And immediately we know what this guy thinks of Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 38, he cries out, Jesus, son of David. What does this mean when he calls Jesus son of David? He knows his pedigree. What, he know Mary and Joseph? No. This is the Messiah. To call someone the son of David is to say, I know, oh, I know this guy. This is the Messiah. We've been hoping for the Messiah. We've been looking forward to the Messiah. Oh, Jesus is here. That's the Messiah, the hope of God's people. And so he imposes on the Messiah. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd tells him to be quiet. But he keeps imposing on Jesus. Every time they told him to be quiet, he got louder. You ever had that happen? Usually it's a toddler in a grocery store. They start kind of fussing. And yeah, shh. Oh, man, every time you tell them to be quiet, they get louder. And then pretty soon you have to go out to the car. That's fun. He just gets louder and louder. Why, why is this guy imposing on the Messiah? Because he knew his Old Testament. What's the Old Testament say? The Messiah brings sight to the blind. Messiah, he's here. Okay, I'm blind. I can do the math. Messiah here, I'm blind. I'll be that guy. Messiah, have mercy on me. I know know my Bible. You're supposed to heal me. This is fantastic. You should do this with God all the time. I'm saying, God said, Lord, you said you would hear me. What's the deal? That's what this guy was doing. Son of David, I know you're the Messiah. Have mercy on me. Heal my blindness because the Bible says Messiah's heal blindness. So let's get going. Jesus calls him over. What do you want from me? And the guy says, make my... See, he's just talking Bible with Jesus. He's not being selfish, although I'm sure he was a little because he's a sinner like you and me. He just knows his Bible. Messiah, blind guy, let's get it on. The crowd, of course, is rebuking this guy. And why would they be rebuking this guy? Be quiet. I mean, that seems rude. There might be a couple of reasons. They might assume this guy is a dirty, rotten sinner, which he is, but they were too. And the reason is because a lot of times during that time, people assumed people suffering from blindness or other physical maladies did so because of sin. In fact, in another occasion, in, I think in Matthew it is, the disciples look at a blind man and say to Jesus, this brilliant question, Hey, who sinned, him or his parents? I mean, at least wait till the guy's not next to you. It's just rude. So that was a common understanding. Sinners have bad things happen to them. So they might have looked down on this guy. Also, this community wasn't terribly large. It might have been because he is blind. He can't care for himself. These folks are always having to give this guy money so he doesn't starve to death. And they know from their Old Testament law they couldn't let him starve to death. And so here it's kind of this sense of, Man, this guy, won't you go away? We have to give you money. We have to to pay your way. And now we're trying to have a good time with the healer, and you show up and ruin it. I mean, there's a burden they're tired of carrying. He cried out to Jesus all the more. 
Jesus, what do you want from me? Lord, recover my sight. Recover your sight. Uh, uh, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. What did the guy believe? The guy believed Jesus was the Messiah. Was he right or wrong? Right. The guy believed the Bible said Messiah heals blind people. Was he right or wrong? He's right. All he did was believe the facts. I point this out because many people think faith is, pun intended, blind faith. Here's a blind guy whose faith was not blind. It was well informed by the facts. We are Christians not because we have blind faith. We are Christians because there is an empty tomb and it's been confirmed. If Jesus wasn't rising from the dead, the question is, why in the world did you get up and come down here today? I wouldn't have. I would have slept in. But he's risen from the dead, so why wouldn't we? So this guy just believed the facts. You're the Messiah. I'm a blind guy. Messiah heals blind guys. And Jesus said, you got it. You are healed. Jesus' response to this guy shows his compassion. Remember that persistent widow who was seeking justice from the evil judge? This man also, like that persistent widow, continued to pursue Jesus because he knew what Jesus is like. He is the Messiah, he is not harsh, and he is full of compassion. And Jesus responds to his persistent faith with compassion. Think about Jesus' position. Where is he walking to? A cross. And he's got plenty of time to stop and talk to this persistent blind guy. In fact, he looked forward to providing him healing consistent with what Jesus was up to. Look at what the guy did with his sight. He immediately went and got a Netflix subscription so he could get caught up on all what the Braille version of Netflix just doesn't have the same impact. No. Immediately when he recovered his sight, he what? Followed him. See, his aim wasn't merely sight, because his sight's going to fail again at some point. He might get old and his sight will fail, or at some point he will die, and then those eyes won't be working anymore until the resurrection. The point was not merely sightedness, although he enjoyed that. The point was to see Jesus and follow him. That closeness. He followed Jesus, glorifying God, just like for us. The point isn't merely forgiveness of sins. We must have that to have Jesus. The point is to receive that healing so that what? We can follow Jesus. That's the point. Man wanted his sight, and he got it, but he wanted something more, life in Jesus. And here we see why Jesus is on mission. He's on mission to show his kindness while on the road to the crucifixion. The mission of Jesus, what did he have to do? Suffer and die. Why did he do it? Because he is compassionate and he is kind. We need to ask ourselves what we want from Jesus. What do we expect of Jesus in our lives? Because one of the reasons the disciples had trouble seeing the mission of Jesus is because their expectations didn't line up with what Jesus was up to, and they couldn't make heads or tails of the difference. Disappointment with Jesus happens when our expectations of Jesus 
aren't his mission. Disappointment with Jesus happens when our expectations of Jesus aren't his mission. Some things we wish were Jesus' mission. Ready? Oh, don't give me that. Making our kids turn out the way we want. Does Jesus want our kids to turn out glorifying him? They will according to his will. But we want Jesus to walk to Jerusalem to fix our kids. And Jesus said what? I'm going to die on a cross for your sin. And we say, well, that's great, Jesus, but can you also fix my kids? And we get disappointed because we want our mission to be Jesus' mission. Does Jesus not care about my kids? I didn't say that. Pay attention. What's his mission? Save sinners like us. Some other things we wish were Jesus' mission. Okay, look straight ahead, guys. Fixing our spouses. Don't turn. You know, my marriage would be great if he would only, and it bothers, my, bothers me and disappoints me that Jesus hasn't made him yet. And I don't understand why that isn't Jesus' mission. And we get disappointed with Jesus because our mission is not his mission and we get mad about it. We get disappointed with Jesus when his mission isn't to give us lots of money, to make it so we're never sick or less sick, that Jesus hasn't fixed all the problems in the culture that annoy us, like drivers in the left-hand lane of the freeway going under the speed limit. That is my mission. It bothers us that the mission of Jesus is not to make the right, i.e. my favorite candidate, always win. These things are not unimportant to God. Are they unimportant to God? No, they aren't unimportant to God, but they only are important to God to the degree he chooses to use them in his mission to save sinners and reconcile right relationship with him. That's it. Those things are important to God to the degree they show us we need to have right relationship with Jesus. And we want all of these things to be God's main mission. And when they're not, we get mad at God. Here's another question, which is this. What does God get out of saving us? What does God get out of it? God is only bound by his nature to do which that is his desire and his plan. So God saved us simply because he is a compassionate savior. There's no profit motive for God. He saved us because that's what he's like. He is a redeeming God. So if God is compassionate to those who have offended his righteousness, you and me, If God is compassionate to those who have offended his righteousness and he actually takes great delight in expressing his love and compassion to those of us that have offended his righteousness, the question is, when you look at your walk with God, what is God's attitude toward you today? Right now, when you walked into the room, what was God's attitude toward you? Love and compassion. Now, many of us walked into this room today hoping to get things right so we could finally know that God's not mad at us. That's not what God's doing. 
He's trying to make known to you his kindness. The book of Romans says his kindness leads us to repentance. If you are in Christ and you are feeling shame and guilt and a sense of God's anger, that is not the Holy Spirit to you. It's a spirit. It's not holy. Because God is intending to communicate to you his kindness and compassion. Because God knows his kindness and compassion will draw us toward him in repentance and faith. And our relationship with God is one through the risen Christ that is reconciled. If you're a Christian, stop trying to fix your relationship with God. He already did it. How about just enjoy it? How about just worship the God who made your relationship right? If you were in charge of fixing your relationship with God, it would still be broken. Thank God we're not. Be like the blind guy. In another book of the Bible, we think his name was Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Messiah, have mercy on me. Why should I? Because you're the Messiah. Works out perfect. You're compassionate. I need compassion. Let's get it on. That's the kind of Savior we have. He's compassionate towards us. One of the things we can learn from this passage is we can redefine our relationship with God Instead of being one we're always trying to get out of feeling bad about what we've done wrong, instead of move towards enjoying right relationship with Jesus today. This is a relationship where we enjoy his compassion. Finally, this, and then we'll close. Since Jesus saved us with his compassion, what does that mean about how we should serve others? With compassion. Having experienced such deep compassion from a Savior, it should move us to gladly express help and love and compassion to those who have need. And I just want you to think about this just briefly before I pray. Make a plan here. How can you show compassion to another sinner this week? Good chances if you live with other people in your home, you live with sinners. The chance is 100%. How can you show compassion to another sinner in your home this week? Let me help you with that. There are people in your home that annoy you the same way every annoy you the same way every week. Am I right? You have let them know how they annoy you and they refuse to fix it. Maybe you haven't let them annoy you and you act annoyed hoping they'll pick up the vibe. That's called passive aggressive and it doesn't work ever. What if this week instead of annoyed it was compassion? Well, well, but, well, but then they'll never stop. Then the, but then they'll never get it. Uh, am I right? Oh, man, aren't you glad Jesus doesn't say that to you? Oh, my Lance, what if Jesus said that? You're never going to get it. What's the answer? Probably right. And all, all I'm saying, all I'm suggesting is to take the terms of the way Jesus engages with us in relationship and say, how, what can I do this week to show that kind of compassion to another sinner this week? Where is there a place in my life where I can offer forgiveness? Recognizing there's a place for healthy boundaries, but where in my life this week can I just say, you know what, it's good, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I will not want to exact from you the cost for what you did wrong to me. I will just simply offer you forgiveness. Where can you practice patience this week? And how can you plan for it today? How do you know, looking into this week, you know the places where you immediately get impatient 
What if today you plan for on that moment to, to practice patience? What can you do for another as a sacrifice to help them this week? All of this, all of this is an act of worship. Saying, Jesus, you're awesome. I want to be like you because you're awesome. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and practice worship as I reflect on your compassion this week. The mission of Jesus, what do you have to do? Die for us and rise from the dead, and he did it. Hit it out of the, hit it out of the park. Perfectly done. And he did it because he's full of compassion and kindness. God, we thank you for your compassion. We don't deserve it. You know that. And you also recognize, God, that we don't even know how big a deal it is. We don't even properly value it. But nonetheless, Jesus, you pour out your love and compassion to us over and over again. Your mercies are, are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, I pray for those of us here today who know you by faith that you might move in our hearts to once again recognize your great love and compassion. Maybe, Lord, you would open our eyes that the goal of our salvation is to have right relationship with you and enjoy relationship with you. Would you silence the voice of the enemy in our ears who is trying to make us define our relationship with you as one of trying to escape guilt? But instead, Lord, we would listen to your Holy Spirit that says we are as righteous as Christ and we have close relationship with you so we can come boldly into your presence. But God, I pray especially this morning for people who are here this morning who don't know you by faith, I would pray in this moment that your Holy Spirit would show them how much they need Jesus, that they need his forgiveness to pay the price for their rebellion against God, and Lord, that they need relationship with you because that's the only thing that will satisfy. So my prayer would be in this moment, God, even in this moment of quiet, that they would reach out to you in prayer, asking for forgiveness and life in you. God, we pray as we look forward to this week, would you give us eyes that are open? where we can put into practice what it's like to be compassionate like you are. And that we would do that as an act of worship. Even if we do it imperfectly and in broken ways, we can recognize that your grace is sufficient. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song.